Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Michael Moreno. Dr. Moreno is a family medicine physician of nearly 25 years. He is author of the New York Times bestselling 17-Day Diet book series. He is also the host of the podcast, Wellness Inc., and his work focuses on encouraging and sustaining positive lifestyle change. This episode is going to offer you a physician's perspective on sex. We're going to talk about tips for doctors and patients alike when it comes to having productive conversations about sexual issues in a physician's office, the most common sex problems that come up in medical settings, the importance of having a healthy lifestyle for having a great sex life, and why we need to get away from the idea that we can fix all of our sex problems simply by taking some kind of pill. This is going to be a really informative and useful conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Mike, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello. Happy to be here. This is always a great topic, and it deserves the utmost attention without a doubt. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I'm excited to speak with you about it. Actually, the last time we spoke, I was on your podcast where you asked me all about sexual desire, sexual communication, and sex ed. So I'm looking forward to flipping the script and asking you a few questions this time. Put me on the spot. I mean, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Okay. So to get started, I always like to ask my guests about their professional journey. So can you tell us what brought you to the medical field? Why did you decide to become a doctor in the first place? To be honest, I've always loved to learn. I've always loved to be in a classroom setting, in a, a learning setting, maybe not just a classroom, but any sort of environment where I can learn, not just from a clinical standpoint, but as a human and so I thought to myself, well, what better can I do and how long can I stay in school as much as possible to continue to learn, right? Life is just a, a continuous journey of, of learning. So I find humans, I find people, I find behavior fascinating. And it brought me to family medicine and I really can't think of a better choice I could have made. Yeah. Now, in family medicine, you do a lot of really direct patient interaction. You know, you're on the, the front lines of, of healthcare. Was there a reason that you chose that specialty over, you know, there are lots of different options you have as a physician. So was there anything that brought you to family medicine in particular? You know, it was really about that interaction with people. There are so many specialties in medicine that are procedure-based and, and there isn't a lot of sort of talk and discussion. And I really, and I pride myself in all these years, I really feel like I get to know my patients. I really understand them and know them on a certain level that is beyond just their physician. I like to consider them friends. And I think it's it's just, to me, that idea of family medicine, really treating the entire family, I think it allows you to sort of penetrate and become more present in people's lives and really make your treatment of these individuals much more complete and better. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your training specifically around sex that you got when you were in medical school <laughs> and residency. And I know that was a little while ago and, you know, things may have changed a little since then. But my reason for asking this is because I've seen some scientific papers saying that less than half of medical schools require sexuality education and that most medical students 
on average are getting less than 10 hours of sex ed across their entire four years of medical school, which seems like not a lot of of training. So I'm curious what your experience was like and whether when you left medical school, you felt like you knew what you needed to know about sex and whether you had to kind of supplement the education you received in any way. Well, I will tell you the birds and the bees got missed in, in terms of medical school. And and to your point, I you know, I went to medical school in 1991. So yes, we're talking 30 years ago, but much like nutrition and in the world that I deal with a lot in terms of lifestyle and whether it's health and nutrition, fitness, food, whatever, we did not really get a lot of education on sex. And I think it's a mistake because as I fast forward now into my career, 20, 25 years later, I will tell you as a family physician, it's something I deal with multiple times a day without a doubt. So not a lot of training and I hope things have changed. I assume that a lot of things change in the evolution of education in terms of the sexual ed component, much like, as I mentioned, nutrition and other things. But I got to be honest, we didn't get a lot of it. And I'm sure that you've learned a lot simply by having these daily interactions with your patients. But have you also, you know, sought out other educational opportunities around sex or did some continuing education in that area to try and, you know, fill in some of the gaps that you didn't really get in medical school? You know, that's a great question. And I think like most of us, we we feel and we we sense that deficiency in our day-to-day practice. And, and it's one of those things where when you're practicing every day and you realize that the same types of sort of situations continue to come up over and over again, you start to say to yourself, do I know as much as I should know <laughs> about this? So you start to kind of invest your thoughts and ideas and learning experiences in continuing medical education. And, you know, in, just to be quite honest and frank, in, in my personal relationships, I'm very candid with my patients and I've been seeing therapists just as a whole in general. I think it's one of the most valuable things that I've pursued in my, my life. And I see the same therapists and have for about 20 years now. And it's not always sex related. It's just life related. You know, I always say to to my patients, you never know when the wheels are going to come off and it's always best to be prepared. And it's one of these things where I'm trying to always further my education in those things. Yeah. Now, it sounds like you're somebody who's open with your patients and that's great. But we know that inside physicians' offices, there's often some reluctance on both sides of the table to talk about sex. So for example, some doctors might have their own personal discomfort around discussing sex, or they might be worried about offending their patient just by bringing up the topic of sex. And then on the other side, you've got the patients who might feel ashamed or embarrassed to ask their sex questions, or they just might not know how or when to to bring that up in their conversation with their physician. So what do you think needs to happen to make the doctor's office a more comfortable environment for discussing sex? So what are some practical tips for both doctors and patients? And these can be things that you know you do or that you've learned along the way, but how do we make that a more open environment where we can have more of these productive discussions? Yeah, you know, it, it's so critical. And, and when you bring this up and you look at cultural differences and you look at how different the world is. For me, I I feel like, and I I tell my patients this outright, I learn from you as much as you learn from me. 
And I think that it's establishing that sort of level ground, that level field early on. And I'll be honest with you, over the years, there are patients that I've had for 20 years that when I initially met them, you don't just kind of develop that overnight, right? It's not like you walk into a room and boom, you instantly have this bond. But you're always making that effort. And I think that as a physician, it's really trying to find that common connection, find that bond, create that that level playing field where people feel comfortable. Because at the end of the day, it's a level of comfort that you have to establish. And, and that level is different with everybody and your approach is different with everybody. So I, I feel like, you know, it's it's finding that common ground and, and whether it's someone who's adolescent or, or maybe someone older or, you know, when you talk about different populations or different cultures, I think it's always trying to create a comfort environment, a safe environment, and that find that level ground where people kind of, you know, take that deep breath and feel in a safe place. And it's really work in progress. And I think as physicians, we owe it to our patients to really always be working at that. Yeah. And I think as you've described it, it's a very tall order because every patient is different. You know, they're coming in right. with their own set of attitudes and values and you have to consider their cultural background. You also have to consider, say, their sexual identity and gender identity and how some people are not open or out about these aspects of the self because they're afraid of being judged or stigmatized or experiencing discrimination. And so, yeah, it, it's a really tough thing, but I like the approach that you describe where it's, you know, tr do the best you can to make everyone comfortable, make the patient your friend so that they feel like they can open up to you about all of these things. When you say the word judge, I think that's what it comes down to. You, you know, and I tell my patients, I said, no one's here to judge anybody. You have to create that level of comfort and trust, really. But it's work in progress. And, and you get to these points, I think, with patients that I've had over the years where you get that breakthrough moment, right, where they suddenly will be open and, and, and sort of feel that, that ability to express. And it just makes you better at what you do. The more facts you have, the more level of comfort you have under any circumstances, you're going to get better information. You're going to be able to give better advice. And I think as a whole, that relationship only stands to grow. Yeah. Now, what would you say to a patient who, you know, their doctor doesn't bring up sex when they're, you know, at their appointment? So how can you as a patient try and work that into the conversation if you don't really know how to navigate that or know what your doctor's comfort level is with discussing these things? Any tips or advice that you'd offer there? You know, it's great. And I've seen over the years, I've seen so many different approaches. It's a really different question. And again, it goes back to, as you said, you know, sexuality and cultural. So I'm Hispanic. I'm Mexican. My father, my family is from Mexico. There's a lot of sort of cultural sensitivities. I, I can use that word, I suppose, in terms of speaking about sex and, and bringing that up. So I think it's really developing that trust in your provider, in, in your physician, in, in whomever it is you're seeing. And to be quite honest, sometimes two people just don't always see eye to eye. You have to find that level of comfort. And not to sort of minimize it, but when you go perhaps to a restaurant and, and you have an experience this is not as great as you had hoped, you maybe give it a few more tries, but there's nothing that says you have to go to this restaurant continuously. Sometimes people have different values and different approaches and different opinions. 
And I think you owe it to yourself, much like anything else, to try to find that common ground and find that person. I, I know when I was looking for a therapist, it didn't click right away. And you give it a little extra time, but sometimes you get to this realization where maybe this is just not a, a proper fit. So I think your needs, your desires, you know, that what you need from a provider is important and is only something you know. And I think expressing that and being open about it is just as important as it is for us as providers to be open with them. But I really think patients and, and individuals need to also say to themselves, if you're not getting what you need, if you don't feel like you're going to go the direction you need, sometimes it's okay to seek another provider. Yeah, I think that's so true that we should be thinking about healthcare, like you're shopping for the right person who's going right. to be the right fit for you to, to take the best care of you holistically. And if you're not getting your needs met, then it's looking for an alternative position. Now, some people might be more limited based on their insurance plans or where they live right in point. terms of how many providers are available. And so, you know, there is also the option of maybe trying to find a sex therapist to, to supplement your sexual health care. And, you know, maybe if they don't, if you don't have access to a lot of therapists in your area, maybe it's exploring telemedicine for trying to get those needs met. But sex and sexual health are so important to our overall well-being. We're going to talk more about that later, but it's really important that you find a way to get those sexual health needs addressed in a medical setting so that they don't go ignored or unattended. Absolutely. And I think, you know, being open and being honest as early as possible is only going to, you know, benefit you in terms of getting that care. But it's, it's a sensitive subject, you know, I mean, if you think about it, it's not like if you want a referral for someone to fix your shoulder, you can talk to your best friend or your buddy about it, because maybe you're not comfortable talking to your best friend or your buddy about sexual stuff. So it's a really different situation, a different approach to things. But yeah, you got to be honest with yourself and, and with everyone so that you can get the best care that you deserve. Yeah. Now, personal story, it's easy for me to talk about sex with my <laughs> primary care provider, given what I do for a living. And it's really funny because whenever I go in for my annual checkup, it ends up being like 45 minute to an hour visit. And, you know, like maybe 10 minutes of the time is spent on me and why I'm there. <laughs> and the rest of the time is just my doctor picking my brain about sex. And, you know, he kind of treats it like a form of continuing education for him. So it's, it's, it's funny, I, but I'm happy to you know, be there and provide that educational tool for him because he'll ask me questions about, well, I'm seeing this issue coming up more with my patients now. And what do you think about that? And, you know, because like we said, doctors often don't get a lot of training in this area. So, you know, I'm there to help fill in the gaps. Listen, if you're interested, then maybe I need to have you as a patient so I can further my <laughs> education on that level. But uh, it's absolutely something. And, and it's true with anything, right? I meet so many patients that have whatever in their background as their vocation or experiences. And I'm always feel like, and I go back to that statement I made earlier that, you know, I may be the physician and you're the patient, but we're both humans. We're both, you know, things I don't know and, and vice versa. And it's about that communication and really learning. And I think that's what life's about. But, uh, yeah, it would be a helpful thing to have a patient on my panel that had your knowledge, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of communication, I know that something that you do as a doctor is you have to take 
patient sexual histories. And, you know, if you're going to offer comprehensive sexual health care, you have to know what your patient's sex lives look like. But there's some debate over, you know, what are the right questions to ask? And for example, I blogged about a study the other day finding that medical students don't necessarily agree on what counts as sex, right? They're largely in agreement that vaginal intercourse and anal intercourse count, but they're really split over whether they count oral sex or mutual masturbation as sex. And that's important because there is some STI risk associated with those activities. You know, there are several STIs that can potentially be spread through oral genital contact. And even if you're just doing genital genital contact without penetration, you know, there's still a risk for herpes and HPV from the skin to skin contact. And then you know, compounding this problem is the fact that patients themselves, you know, they have their own definitions of sex that might be different from their doctors. People are all over the map in terms of what counts as sex. So I'm curious, kind of, how do you deal with this issue in your line of work? You know, what kinds of questions do you ask when you're taking a sexual history to ensure you're getting the most helpful information? Well, again, I think you you have to come across as being open and and not someone who's passing judgment. Again, it goes back to that communication style, that communication skill. I think as a clinician, and again, with many of my patients, I've known them for decades, I'm very matter of fact with them. And I think you have to, you know, what they say that the average, you know, written material needs to be written in the sixth or seventh grade level. And I think we need to be aware of that. It, you need to be aware of the words you use. You need to really bring it to a level that is that sort of education level, that reading level. And then I think the, the biggest problem that we're compounded with is social media, right? We can't battle what is out there. We can't battle what people gravitate to, what they read, what they watch, and so I think it's really asking a lot of questions. And I think it's really trying to get to as many of ideas. Never assume, you know, that old idea of, of assumption that a person knows what you're talking about. And I'll often say that to my patients. I'm like, when I say this, what is that? Like, give me the definition. What do you think of when I say this? Rather than just say it. It's it sort of make sure, and it's not a quizzing way of doing things. It's just a, I want to make sure that you're with me on this. And, and I just want to know. So it's a, a mutual understanding. But I think what it comes down to is creating a comfortable environment. And again, when you ask questions, never assume and always follow these questions by asking people, what do you think of when I say this word or this term? That's such a great approach. And I think it's a great way of addressing this fact that doctors and patients might have different definitions and understandings. And, you know, when it comes to taking sexual histories, a common question that's asked is, are you sexually active? But what does it mean to be sexually active? Right, exactly. And I think people, again, for cultural reasons, for just socialists, how they've grown up or their experience, we don't know. And I think, so when you ask that question, you may get 20 different answers, yet they're all you know, right for a different reason. So yeah, I, I just don't think you can ever really stop asking enough questions. And I, and I think there's so much to know about people, but it, it not, it's a language, right? I, I think of it as speaking that language. And when you're someone who maybe say knows a second language, not as well as you know, your primary language, sometimes you misspeak or say certain things that when you're speaking to somebody else, there's a miscommunication. And 
I think when you have a miscommunication, when you're talking about such an important thing like sexual, you know, history or sexual relationships, you could really go down a bad pathway if you're not on the same level or that same sort of page. Sure. And it, it's so important to not bring those assumptions in. And another area I'm thinking about is, you know, for example, if you ask your patient for their sexual identity label, and you might have a patient who says, well, I'm heterosexual, but we know that sexual identities don't always match up with people's sexual attractions and behaviors. You know, someone can identify as, say, a heterosexual man, but also still have sex with men. And so that's why a lot of doctors, you know, instead of asking that question about what is your sexual identity, they'll ask something more specific, such as, do you sleep with men, women, both, or neither? And so, you know, by opening it up in that way, you're getting more specific information, but you're also showing that, you know, it's okay to, you know, report identities, behaviors, attitudes that might not be consistent with popular opinions or social norms and things like that. Yeah. And I think we've come a long way. You know, when you think about just the change that we see now, you you know, currently in our environment, I think people are more open. People are more, you know, just able to express themselves. And I think the awareness is is really they're starting to become a better light in that direction. But it's always going to be work in progress. And much like you said, that's kind of how I approach it is by giving basically all of the options, all of the situations, at least that come to mind for me, and allowing them to sort of, you know, tell me where they lie in this spectrum. I really think if there's one thing out there as a clinician, if other clinicians are listening, is that I've learned that people sense that sort of apprehension. And I really think that we as as providers, as professional providers, no matter what field you're in, we owe it to our patients to come across as a non-judgmental way and to really let them realize that yeah, people can sense when you're not comfortable. And, and, and I think we need to always be working and bettering ourselves to create that level of comfort so that we can you know, manage whatever the situation may be as best as possible. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, the same advice that you might give to, say, a couple that's having relationship problems on how to have a conversation about a difficult topic, you know, approaching it non-judgmentally, monitoring your body language, eye contact, all these other things. I think they're very transferable to the medical environment, you know, to open the lines of conversation. So I think there's, there's just a lot that can be learned there. But something else I want to talk about is, as a family physician, you said you see sex-related issues pretty much every day. So what are the most common sexual issues that come up in your practice? What are you seeing on a regular basis? Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, erectile dysfunction is probably the number one thing that, that I see. And it's frustrating that we live in this world, it seems like, where everything now is just has a pill to repair it. You know, in family medicine, and a lot of the work I've done is just in lifestyle, right? Exercising, proper sleep, stress management, and nutrition. All of these things really play into your performance, if I can use that word. So I feel like erectile dysfunction is probably 70% of what I see. The other 30% is a mixture. Premature ejaculation is common. Often just relationship type things, you know. I don't get enough sex, they want too much sex, that sort of thing. 
oftentimes infidelity comes in in there. And, and that's often a really big, big thing. And the impact that infidelity can have is so far beyond just sex, right? It's the impact on, on the family and on the individuals. So it's tough. I, you know, one of the things that I struggle with is, you know, as a family physician, I am the physician to families, to the entire family, right? And, and so oftentimes they want to be seen together and, you know, maybe there's something they don't want to, you know what I mean? They don't want to express in front of their significant other. So it's recognizing that maybe seeing them together is one thing, but when you see them apart is often when I take advantage of, of that ability to say, Hey, you know, let me ask you this because when people are together, there's just certain things they don't want to reveal. So I think taking advantage of when you see people as individuals, and this is just as a family medicine doctor, rather than when you always see them as couples, take advantage of those points when you get them alone, because you really, if you're, if you spend enough time and you really ask the right questions, you can really make a big impact in these people's lives. That's such an important point is who else is in the room with you when you're having right. your medical appointment? You know, if you're right. an adolescent you know, when you're engaging in sex for the first time, you might have questions for your doctor. But if you have a parent or guardian in the room with you while you're having a medical appointment, you know, that's not going to allow for that kind of open discussion to happen. And, you know, if you have couples who go in together, that can go both ways. You know, sometimes people will be reluctant to talk about, say, if they're in a monogamous relationship, why they might need an STD test, right? Right. But by the same token, there are also cases where sometimes having the other partner there allows you as the doctor to get more information, right? I know that my parents often go to appointments together and it's like, it's really important for my mom to be there because my dad doesn't like to communicate right. um, about health issues. And so the doctor actually gets a lot more information because my mom is, you know, filling in the blanks that my dad isn't providing. So yeah, it's just, it's interesting to think about that and how it can kind of cut both ways. Yeah, it's the memory aspect as well. You know, I have a lot of patients who are well into their 70s, 80s and 90s. I mean, let's face it, I mean, I'm only in my 50s and I feel sometimes like I forget, I say things to my girlfriend. She's like, we just talked about this yesterday. I'm like, oh yeah, 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 that's right. You know, so I think having that person there to understand what what was sort of, you know, presented and, and what the plan is, is important. But yeah, it's amazing when you, we call it historical drift, right? Which mm -hmm. is, as time goes on, the stories change. And is, as you, to your point, when you have different people in the room or one person in the room or both, you get a different story all the time. So I think it's taking advantage of every potential visit, every potential interaction, and making sure that you cover the bases as best you can. Yeah. So I guess the lesson is have a little bit of alone time with your doctor, and not <laughs> right. just always go in as, as a couple. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And as a physician or as a clinician, take advantage of that alone time and make sure you say, you know, hey, is there anything that you may want to talk about considering you know, your husband or your wife or your significant other isn't with you today? And no. you'd be amazed at people, their eyes just you know, bulge out and they're like, <laughs> you know, I'm glad you asked because again, you, you I don't know, be, be careful what you ask for, right? Because then you're in there for a long time talking about all these things. But no, all kidding aside, it's important to take advantage of every interaction and, and really do your best to, to help people. I mean, that's what we're all here to do. You, myself, and anybody in, in this, you know, this particular field. Yeah. We have much more to discuss, including the role of a healthy lifestyle in having great sex. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. 
Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is physician Dr. Michael Moreno. Now, we've talked about some of the common issues that you see as a physician in your family medicine practice. And one of the issues you said you see more often than any other is erectile issues in men. So something I wanted to ask about that is how common is it for young men to come in reporting erectile difficulties? And I ask this because there are media reports saying that this is on the rise. And so is that something you're seeing in your practice? And if so, what do you think the cause is behind that? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's it's a fantastic question and one that deserves attention because when I started practicing in the late 90s, your classic example of a patient who you'd be giving Viagra to would be an elderly person, perhaps had not the greatest of baseline health, perhaps diabetic, you know, anything that affects circulation, right? When you think of getting erection, you think of circulation. Well, what improves circulation? Avoidance of smoking, staying hydrated day to day, minimizing caffeine and alcohol, above all, being active. I mean, when you get your heart pumping and blood leaves your heart and it goes to organs, it's such a critical thing. So in the 90s, the classic patient may have been an 80-year-old person who maybe was not in the best of shape, doesn't exercise much, you know, maybe smoking or anything, blood sugar issues. But as time has gone on, now you're seeing these kids in their 20s. I say kids because I'm like 53, but you see these youngsters coming in and, and you think to yourself, when you explain to them what circulation is and how you get an erection, all of these things, it's amazing that I would say over the years that it's, you know, year after year, it's become decades and decades younger. And quite honestly, I think it's the more sedentary lifestyle that we see in people. And I think probably above all, and most people would agree, it's the stressful life that we live. Not to say it wasn't stressful 20 years ago, but logarithmically, I think that that level of stress and how we handle it has gotten really to be a, a challenge for people. I am so glad that you didn't just say porn <laughs> and just like <laughs> leave it at that because I hear that all the time. People love to blame porn for young men's erection problems. And I think, you know, that that is not going for the right source. I, I think, in, right. <laughs> you know, when you look at young men who might have erectile issues, yeah, they might report increased or high levels of porn use. But the question is, is it the porn that's causing the erectile issues or are they turning to porn as a way of sort of coping and dealing with the issues they're experiencing, right? And that's an amazing point. That's an that's a great point. And, and I I always try to just 
bring it down to basics, right? You get an erection because you have circulation, you have desire. There's a, clearly a mental and physical component of it. And, and that sort of that combination, that complement of those two things, there's so many things that have to happen to get an erection, right? And I think we just dismiss it. And unfortunately, everything is just turned to the pill. And quite honestly, then you end up having people who have you know, headaches and congestion and dry mouth and all of these other th- side effects. And, and again, I think we owe it to ourselves and to our patients to really kind of break this down to the basics. Yeah. And for, for those listening, you know, when we're talking about erectile dysfunction and its causes, when you're looking at older men, you know, it's primarily something physiological at play. And Mike mentioned many of the, the things that can contribute there. But when it's younger men, it, more often it's a psychological issue and it could be stress related. It could be performance anxiety. There could be so many things. Right. Uh, it could be due to relationship conflict. And so, you know, having that psychological treatment, you know, is, is really going to get at the root cause as opposed to just treating everything with a pill. And, you know, I'll say that the pill itself isn't necessarily bad. And by pill, I'm talking about Viagra, Cialis, those other drugs. You know, there are some young men for whom, you know, they take the pill for a short time. I should quit saying the pill because it sounds like birth control pill. So, you know, <laughs> when you've got young men who might take Viagra for a short period of time, that can help boost their sexual self-confidence. And then they might not needed going forward. But for others, it might become kind of a crutch, you know, something that they then depend on and they feel like they can't perform without the pill for the rest of their lives. I also know that some doctors actually prescribe young men placebos, you know, sugar pills instead of Viagra. And sometimes it's just that psychological act of taking a pill that provides some level of confidence that can help them to, you know, better navigate those sexual situations. And I think ultimately that goes back to the fact that when you're talking about these younger guys with ED, it's not really a physiological issue. It's more psychological. Right. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because for so many of us, sex is a really important thing. It's a huge thing in our in our health lives, if I can use that term. And I oftentimes use the idea of a better sex life. I use that that concept to get people to do the other things that they should be doing. And so, you know, for instance, if I'm trying to get people to control their blood sugar or to control their blood pressure or to control their weight. What I say to them is, listen, all of these things are important, but think about your sex life and and having a better sex life and a better erection and better, you know, relationship with your significant other. And they don't think about, you know, quitting smoking or their blood sugar or their blood pressure. But if you tell them, hey, I'm going to make your sex life better right away, they're like, okay, great. So it's like, a, it's sort of a, a good way to, to use that idea, that concept, because for so many people, that's a big thing. And, and it is rightfully so, right? But when you can use that as sort of that, that ultimate, hey, if you do this, this, and this, you're going to have a better sex life they're like, I'm in. So I think it's a great way to really approach the total health picture, really, and getting your patients healthy on that level. Yeah. And I'm thinking of the carrot and stick analogy here and how, you know, sex is a much better carrot, you know, when you're in the doctor's office. Absolutely it is. And before you know it, you, you have these people with better sugar controls and they've quit smoking and they're exercising regularly and hydrating. Gosh, I, I don't think people realize how important just staying hydrated is to getting an erection. You know, too much caffeine, too much alcohol, all of these things have an effect on your overall hydration on your body. 
and ultimately can really impact how good of an erection you get, how sustainable it is. So, you know, simple things like this can really lead to a lot of improvement. Yeah. And something else, and, you know, since we're talking about kind of a healthy lifestyle here, something that often gets neglected is the role of sleep. And I've seen a lot of studies start to come out recently where they've been linking lack of sleep or poor quality sleep to elevated rates of sexual dysfunction in both men and women. And I think that really speaks to the powerful role that sleep plays in promoting a healthy sex life. Do you have anything else that you would add to that on the topic of sleep? Absolutely. And I think when we, you know, when you think about your sexual performance, I think you have to be in in sort of a, a situation where you you're you're rested, you're 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 comfortable. I mean, look, when you don't get a good night's sleep and you're cranky and your significant other wants to be, you know, have some sexual interaction with you and you're not into it, it can really lead to so many problems. So I think it's that level of of tranquility that you achieve through exercise and and you know fitness hydration, good diet, nutrition. But if you're not sleeping well, it's not going to put you in the mood to do anything, let alone something on on this level. So absolutely, it's critical. Another thing that people dismiss is, you know, we live such a stressful life these days. And I tell people, give yourself a little bit of credit because stress can impact you on so many levels. And I don't find it helpful to just tell people, well, it's just stress causing it. I think you got to break it down and you have to let people, I always use the term respect your stress. I, I don't like it when people say, well, you just got to deal with it or it is what it is or whatever. However, I, I think there's a level of sort of just lack of sensitivity to people in, in that sense. So I, I always like to use that term, respect your stress. It's real. It's there. There are things you can and can't do about it. And there's avoidable and unavoidable stress, but respecting it and giving it its due diligence, its day is really important in, in how we function as a human. Absolutely. And it's so important for us to find ways of, you know, coping with stress that are healthy because, you know, stress is always going to be there, but you need to have your outlets. And for some people that's, getting more exercise. For other people, it's engaging in mindfulness or meditation practices. For other people, it's taking up a hobby, you know, something that they can focus their attention and energy on so that they're not distracted and thinking about that stressor all the time. It's about finding something that that works for you. And, you know, masturbation can also be part of this too, because, you know, masturbation is a form of sex relief and so is sex, you know. So find what works for you as a way of, you know, dealing with the stress that's in your life because it's not going to go away on its own. Right. And, And, you know, I tell people all the time, stress is always going to try to work against you make it work for you. And and whether that's, you know, instead of turning to some sort of bad behavior, let's, you know, perhaps bad is not the right term, but unhealthy behavior, make it work for you. Rather than reach for a couple of cigarettes to smoke or a bad choice in food or a binge eating session, grab a glass of water, go for a walk, meditate, be mind. I mean, there are so many things. I mean, stress is always going to work against you. You need to kind of be mindful, give yourself a chance to make a better decision about your health, as opposed to that default one, which typically tends to be not not the best choice. Yeah. Now, since we're on the subject of, you know, psychology and sex, let's talk about the issue of perception versus reality. You know, I know that there are many people who perceive themselves as having a sexual problem, 
because they're comparing themselves to some unrealistic standard. You know, for example, (laughs) a man might think he has a penis problem because he doesn't have the same stamina that the porn stars do in the videos that he watches. Or, you know, someone might think their sex life is terrible because they're only doing it once a week, which is actually average. You know, that's... I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah, you're right there. You're right at the mean. But maybe they have a friend who's doing it every day. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about how skewed perceptions of what's normal sometimes create the illusion of a problem where a problem doesn't really exist? And, you know, is that something that you see in your practice? You know, it's so true. And you see this a lot with couples and and they will tend to present in such a way where, and they always tend to use that term, we're having trouble in the bedroom. That's what you hear, right? right. And it's not typically the color of the curtains or the bedspread. It's typically, you know, trouble in the bedroom. It typically always is the same thing, but it's true. And I think People need to have facts. And you, as you stated, you know, what is the average amount of time to have sex? Well, where do they get this information? Is it from porno? Is it from some website that is completely wrong and unrealistic? Now, unfortunately, with social media, anybody and any, everybody can post whatever they want. And if someone migrates to that platform for information, it can be very misleading. So I think it is giving people the facts as they truly are. How long would someone expect to last during sexual intercourse before reaching orgasm? What is that time? How many times a week should we have sex? I think giving them the factual information, making sure they're not getting their information from someplace that may not be as accurate. And again, it goes back to that communication level. But, you know, if people think they're supposed to be having sex three times a day every week, and they're having it once or twice a week, that's going to be a problem. So it's a great opportunity to to kind of create that that ground for the couple and, and have them understand because a lot of times it's maybe it's communication. And intercourse doesn't, you know, sex doesn't always have to mean just intercourse, right? It can be masturbation, as you mentioned. It can be, you know, playing. It can be toys. It can be whatever it is, right? Sex is not just intercourse. It's really an experience. And I mean, you know this a thousand times more than I do. What do I know? But again, I I think we need to open people's mind to let them realize that, well, just because you don't have intercourse every time, it's still a sexual experience. So, you know, laying those things out there is so important. Yeah, everything that you said is so important. And And it's why I do what I do. It's because people have all of these wrong ideas about, what is normal when it comes to sex? Because they never got the sex education that they needed and that they deserved. And I've said it on the podcast many times before that so much of sex therapy is actually just sex education. It's correcting the myths and misconceptions that are harmful and that are causing problems in people's lives. And so I would imagine that you as a physician, you know, you also do a fair amount of sex ed too related to some of these issues that come up. And, you know, that's just another reason to get back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the program, which is why physicians need a lot of sex ed because it can help to fix so many of the common issues that come up on a daily basis. So many things, you know, what I've found, and and I think this is really important, and we sort of touched on this when you said, you know, the, using that carrot, uh, that, that analogy, but honestly, I found that when you correct the sexual or potential sexual dysfunction between a couple or between an individual or whatever it may be, when you get them to feel comfortable about themselves and about their sexuality and their sexual lifestyle, it can create a conduit to really improve their other health. 
you know, reducing blood sugars, reducing blood pressure, getting them to lose weight, right? There's so much of that whole idea of, you know, sexual relationships that when people feel better about themselves, maybe they're performing better, they're doing things that their partner likes, they feel better about themselves. They want to better themselves on other levels. So I really think it's a mistake if we don't sometimes take a look at this and realize how, how important this is and how valuable it is to getting the rest of our health parameters back on track. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I appreciate everything that you've shared with us today, especially, you know, talking about how to have a healthy life overall and how that translates to having a healthier sex life. You know, I consider myself to be a biopsychosocial theorist when it comes to sex, meaning that I think we need to look at the potential biological factors, the psychological factors of the individual, and then also the the social and environmental context and cultural context that that person is embedded in. And it's really the intersection of all of these things that helps us to determine what our sexual health is. And so many people just want to reduce everything to, well, it's a hormone deficiency, or I just need this pill to fix or correct (laughs) that problem. And you know, all of these things are just complex and there's so many factors that, that play a role. And, you know, lifestyle is, is really one of those key ones from, you know, and lifestyle means stress management. It means diet, exercise, sleep, all of these things, they're all interconnected. And we need to take this really holistic approach when we're thinking about dealing with sexual problems. Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, I've been seeing the same therapist for over 20 years now. And still, to this day, when I talk to her, even I still have some apprehension when I talk about, you know, sexual dysfunction or, or issues that I may have relationship wise or whatever it may be. And I've known this woman for 20 plus years. So gosh, you know, it's important. And, and as a clinician and practicing, you think, okay, I must have all this wired. Well, guess what? No, I don't. And <laughs> even to this point, and it's funny, she has this way of getting things out of me when she senses that level of sort of discomfort or maybe perhaps lack of openness. But I'll tell you, it's work in progress. And it's something that we need to really realize that it's so critical for our overall well-being as, as an individual. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of doctors who don't practice what they preach, right? <laughs> Where, you know, they know what it means to be healthy and what you need to do to be healthy, but then they themselves don't follow their own teaching and advice. But I like that it sounds like you actually try and follow your own advice. So thanks for that. Thanks for setting a good example. Yeah, I really try to, you know, I tell my patients all the time when, when we're talking about lifestyle and diet and nutritional choices or exercise choices or whatever it may be, I always say, imagine if when you were in school, they gave you a test that was multiple choice and of, right next to your test was the the key with every answer that tells you which bubble to mark. Well, I'm, I'm dating myself, right? Because everything is in a computer now, right? But if you knew the first answer is A and the second answer is C and the we, we have the key to our health. We know most of these answers. How do we get ourselves to choose the right answer off that key? That's the, that's the secret, right? We know right from wrong most of the time, whether it applies to our choice to exercise or be healthy or over-caffeinate or over-alcohol or whatever it may be, right? The proper choice in food and nutrition. Stop yourself, be mindful, give yourself that chance to pick the right answer because most of the time, if you give yourself that chance in this busy world that we live, you're going to pick the right answer. And before you know it, it becomes just second nature. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end because, you know, that advice applies to everything in life. Sex, <laughs> right. Sex related and otherwise. Well, 
Thank you so much for this great conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and listen to your podcast? Absolutely. So the podcast is Wellness Inc. and it's available anywhere where you stream podcasts. I have a very robust website for health, nutrition, and lifestyle change, drmikediet.com. It's just people that I work with in my group is just passionate about making people's lives a healthier thing. And uh, that's what we strive to do. So please reach out and see what we have to offer. I'm sure we can help. Well, thanks again for your time. And thanks for the work that you do and helping us all to lead happier and healthier lifestyles. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about the science of sexual fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.